0: If you would, uh, turn in your copy of God's Word or your bulletin to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to also be looking at one verse in chapter 8, but I can read that one for us. Um, We're going to look at Exodus 3, verses 1-12 through this morning. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, that is God, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And from chapter 8, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank You for this word this morning. Lord, in it we see the heart, Your heart for Your people. We see the bondage that they were in. and We see Your rescue. And I pray this morning that through it we would see our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, I want to show you all my cards right here at the beginning. I don't always do that. By looking at this passage this morning, I hope to accomplish one thing and one thing only. I want to change the way you come to this gathered worship service next week. Through his word from Exodus 3, I am asking the Holy Spirit to move in us in such a way that we will approach what we do together on Sunday morning with a renewed sense of meaning, purpose, excitement, and expectation. I want us to come into this room next Sunday, August the 27th, 2023, differently than we did this morning. Now that's not to pass judgment on what has happened for the last 40 minutes or so. Not at all. But I believe God's word this morning is going to blow the doors off our old vision of what this is. I want you to think back 1 hour and 40 minutes ago. What were you doing this morning around 9:30 a.m.? Think for a second. Maybe a shower? Some breakfast? Today's wordle What were you doing at 9.30 a.m. this morning? Now, more importantly, what were you thinking? Where was your mind? Specifically, I want you to ask yourself this question. What was your mindset regarding driving to and walking into this building? Be honest with yourself. It's okay. What exactly motivated you to get yourself here this morning? For some of us, it was a responsibility, wasn't it? It was our week to serve. Maybe behind the scenes. Maybe behind a guitar. Maybe behind a pulpit. For others, it may have been some sense of duty or habit. I've always gone to church. I'm always going to go to church. Perhaps you came out of a genuine desire to worship God and to hear from God. Amen. If you did. You may have come to see some of your friends. Some of us came out of desperation. Hoping that this might be the morning when we finally felt something, anything, again. And you know, for many of us, it's some great alphabet soup of all of that. Before I go on to make my argument this morning, let me say this to you. No matter why you came this morning, Jesus Christ welcomes you. Jesus Christ Himself welcomes you here. My purpose this morning is not to draw out some guilty feeling from you, nor to pass judgment on apathy or loveless duty. No, my purpose this morning is not to pass judgment, but to cast a vision. To show us from this passage who we were, who we have become, and to what and whom we have been invited. Who we were, who we have become, and to what and whom we have been invited. But to get there, we need to ask these three questions of the children of Israel. So keep your text open. Let's ask these questions. Who were they? So who were these children of Israel that God is sending Moses to deliver from Egypt? Who are they? Well, if you've been tracking with us through our series in Genesis that we just completed a few weeks ago, you will know that they are the families of Jacob's children. Right? You remember, remember there was a famine across the whole eastern world and all the peoples were coming to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. Do you remember that? And the end of the book of Genesis tells us that the children of Israel remained in Egypt. Exodus 1.8 reads, Now there arose a king, a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. That was not good news. And since the Hebrews had grown so numerous in Egypt, the Pharaoh began to oppress them. He set taskmasters over them. He put heavy burdens on the people. Exodus 1.14 says, In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. In short, the children of Israel were a people in bondage. Their lives were bitter. Their prospects bleak. Some might say hopeless. If you just scan the text this morning, you'll see these words. Affliction. Oppression. Cries. Taskmasters. Sufferings. The children of Israel were an enslaved people. But that is not the main thing that was true about them, is it? There was one more thing, more important than their identity as an enslaved people, They were God's people. Look at verse 7. God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. My people. You see, that was the most important thing about them. Their slavery and their oppression was in their face. Day by day, moment by moment. That's what others would have noticed about them. And let's be honest, that's what would have been most real to them, probably. But that was not the most true and important thing about them. It was that God regarded them as His people. Now, who did they become? By the gracious invitation of God's loving heart, they they became, listen, the called out ones. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this phrase down. The called out ones. That's not exactly the verb form that's used in this passage, but I'm going to defend that in a moment. But God tells Moses that He has called him to bring God's people out of Egypt. Look at verse 10. God says to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses did not like this idea at first for a number of reasons that we don't have time to go into, but he eventually gets with the plan. And this is the plan. God is going to bring His people up out of Egypt. Through Moses, He is calling them out of bondage. And you might think, why would someone have to be called out of bondage? Weren't they being held there? Well, yes. But if you read the rest of the book of Exodus, there was always a look over the shoulder. There was something about their hearts where the bondage almost seemed better than the uncertainty. But God is calling them out. Speaking of this event, and this is where I'm defending my my use of the called out ones, the prophet Hosea put it like this of the Exodus. Hosea 11.1 When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel was in bondage. They were slaves. They became the called out ones. and God made good on that promise. Which leads me to this. To what and to whom were they called or invited? To what or to whom were they called or invited? To be sure, God was calling them out of the bondage. That's for certain. He had heard of the sufferings. He had heard of the oppression. He had heard of the affliction. He's calling them out. But God does not call Israel back to where they were before. Go circle around that cave That cave of Machpelah. Just just go circle around it, vagabonds, with no real ownership. No, God God called them to something better. See, despite the struggle under the Egyptian oppression, Israel had grown into a great nation in Egypt. And now God was calling them out to possess the land He had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't miss this. Look at verse 8. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. And in due course, he did bring them out. But why? Well, to keep his promise for sure. That's what verse 8 is telling us. But what's behind the promise? What's behind the promise? Is God Himself. A God who wanted fellowship with His people. Now, this is why I printed chapter 8, verse 1. Look back at that verse or just listen. Why does God call His people out of Egypt? What does 8 1 say? Why did He do it? That they may serve Him. In fact, the Lord instructed Moses to the same thing to Pharaoh two other times. He tells tells Moses, go tell Pharaoh two other times, once in chapter 7 once in chapter 9, let my people go that they may serve me. It's clear. God is saving His people that they may serve Him. And you may be thinking, well, that's great. God takes them out of one bondage serving Pharaoh into another bondage, serving Him. I mean, maybe serving God is better, but doesn't that still feel like bondage? I talk to a lot of unbelievers, and that's how they feel. Many of them. Why would I want to serve God? I'm free. <laughs> I'm the captain of my own ship. I do whatever I want, whenever I want. Friends, that's bondage. We don't have time this morning, but I'm telling you, service to the living God is freedom. Now I know what some of you are thinking. What in the world does this have to do with August 27th? Bear with me a few more minutes. Just bear with me because I'm going somewhere with this. Now let's go down this trail a minute. What is life like in service to God? What would be the key question there? Wouldn't the main factor be this? What kind of God is He? What kind of God is He if I'm going to serve Him? I think that's the main factor. So let's just do a brief survey. Keep your text open. From this text alone, what kind of God is He? First, He's a God who sees and hears. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. He sees and hears. Second, he's a God who moves toward the hurting. Still in verse 8. And I have come down to deliver them. I've come down to deliver them. He's a God who moves toward the hurting. Third, he's a God who blesses with good gifts. Still in verse 8. To bring them up to a good land. A land of abundance flowing with milk and honey. He's a God who gives good gifts. Fourth, He's a God who keeps promises. Still in verse 8, He tells us that the land of abundance is none other than the land of Canaan that He had promised to Abraham. He's a God who keeps promises. Fifth, He's a God who is present with us in all of our callings. Verse 12, He said to Moses, but I will be with you. He's a God who's present with us in our callings. And finally, sixth, He's a God who desires relationship. Verse 12, you shall serve God on this mountain. In short, that is a God worth serving. Isn't it? But there's another angle to this. That Hebrew word that the ESV, which I've read, translates serve The NIV translates worship. Both translations are valid because that word, that Hebrew word, has a semantic range that includes both concepts. In fact, it can mean serve, worship, and labor. And this is a topic for another sermon too, but let me just put it as succinctly as I can. What God is calling His people to is a life lived before Him. A life where everything they do is an act of worship. Every act of service to God, an act of worship. Every labor for one's own provision. Every cup of cold water poured out for the thirsty. Every act of love for a brother and sister or a neighbor. A holy act of reverent love, worship, and service to God. Service is worship. Labor is worship. And these three things are so intimately related in the Hebrew mind, one word can cover them all. Go into Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go that they may worship me. And when Pharaoh hardened his heart for the last time, God moved heaven and earth, literally, to deliver his people so that they could worship and service. That they could live before Him in relationship. The children of Israel were in terrible bondage. God called them out and welcomed them into His presence, His protection, His guidance, and His love. Our story is no different. No different. Who were we? Before we believed in Christ, who were we? You and I. I know who I was. A hopelessly self-righteous Pharisee. Powerless to break the chains of pride and self-importance. That's who I was. Who were you? Jesus says in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Before we in Christ... Before we were in Christ, we were slaves to sin. Do we still sin? Yes. The Bible is clear. Anyone who says they have no sin is a liar. But our fundamental relationship to sin is different. Before we knew Christ, we were utterly enslaved and powerless to escape its chains. Paul says of us that before we knew Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world. The wages of sin is death. Friends, that is who we once were. Hopeless, helpless sinners, blind and in chains. But oh, what we've become. (laughs) What we have become is the called out ones. We're the called out ones. I told you to write that phrase down. Did you know that the main word in the New Testament for church is the Greek word Ecclesia. Ecclesia, ecclesia. You hear it pronounced different ways. Do you know what that means? Literally, it means the called out ones. Or you might say it's the congregation or assembly of all those who have been called out. Again, our story is the same. Just as God saw the sufferings of Israel in bondage to Pharaoh and called them out through the work of his mediator, Moses, God saw us. He heard our cries. He saw us suffering under the bondage of sin and death. And he has called us out. He has called us out, not through Moses. Through Jesus Christ. I hope you're beginning to see what this has to do with next Sunday morning. The weekly gathering of God's people which we call church. It's not a ritual. It's not this building. It's not a meeting of like-minded people like the Rotary Club. What you are doing right now, what you are witnessing right now, whether you comprehend it or not, is a glorious, glorious thing. You are gathered with the ecclesia. I want this to start sinking in. I wonder if you ever think about what happens on Sunday morning across the globe. Do you ever think about this? The first region to see Saturday... I had to do a lot of time zone study for this... The first region to see Saturday night turn into the Lord's Day is in New Zealand. Sometime around 7 p.m. Eastern time, Saturday night, the Lord's Day sun has already warmed the mountains and rivers of New Zealand. Members of the ecclesia leave their homes and join their local congregations. And soon after that, members of the ecclesia across China and India gather and worship. They worship God together. And as this giant ball we call earth, use your imaginations. Don't let me do this alone. As this giant ball we call earth is spinning at the equator about a thousand miles an hour. From our perspective, we're just sitting still. We ain't. Something's going on here. This giant ball we call Earth, it continues to rotate, and Eastern Europe comes online. And the praise of God hits the heavens and beyond. And then Europe and Africa. Ancient cathedrals and makeshift huts echo with the songs of the called-out ones. And finally, as the day is closing in the East, North and South American Christians leave their homes We walk, we drive, we fly, we swim. Whatever we have to do to take our place, it's our turn among the assembly of the redeemed to lift high the name of Jesus. And from New Zealand to Hawaii, in about 22 hours, each Lord's Day, an unbroken strain of voices, creeds, sermons, and prayers rise from the earth, and they become a sweet sound in the ears of God. Church is not boring. And as the one who called them out receives this worship, he deserves, and the redeems rejoice to give. He is satisfied in it. And friends, that's just what happens on earth. We were in bondage to sin. God has made us alive in Jesus Christ. Peter says, you have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. Look around you right now. Look around. I hate it when preachers do this. Just look around. You sit in the midst of the ecclesia. You have a place in Jesus Christ here in one of these seats as the ecclesia of God called out of bondage and sin into the light of Jesus Christ. And it is glorious. And in 30 minutes, somebody else's turn is going to hit. And this praise is going to sweep across the western United States, even to the, the northern west and into Alaska. Across the ocean to Hawaii. This praise of Jesus Christ that we have been a part of in some small way is going to continue. But finally, to what and to whom have we been called? You know, just like Israel, we've been called to worship and serve the living God. If you are in Christ, God saved you to be in communion with himself. But friends, this is where our story and Israel's story begins to diverge slightly. You see, everything they had in shadow, we experience in fulfillment. My habit when beginning to write a sermon is I I read the text early in the week, meditate on it, pray about it, ponder illustrations and things. But until I actually start sitting down to write the sermon, I don't actually write anything, right? I'm just I'm reading and I'm pondering. My habit, as one of my professors taught me, is to, the very first thing, write the entire sermon text in my own handwriting, no matter how long. And when I do that, I invariably see something I did not see when reading. And that, maybe that's my reading comprehension. You don't have to do it this way. But every week, when I sit down to write the text out, in my own hand, something that I didn't see strikes me. This week it was Exodus 3, 4, and 5. Look at your text. When the Lord saw that he, that is Moses, turned aside to see, God called to him, Moses, Moses, and he said, here am I. And then God said to him, do not come near. Those are sad words. Do not come near. They're sad words for us, and listen, they're sad words for God. You see, as good as it was to be called out of Egypt, as good as it was to be delivered on dry ground through the Red Sea, as good as it was for God to manifest His glory before the people at Sinai, As good as it was to finally make it to the promised land, there was still a distance between God and His people. They had His presence, but not to the full. They had a temple to worship in, but that temple had a curtain. It was a necessary distance. They were in His presence through the glory cloud and the pillar of fire. But that curtain was still between the ark, the throne of God, and the people. And sad though it was, it was for the people's good. Do not come near. Some of you this morning still think God is saying those words to you. And let me caution, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, those are, those are good, safe words. Because if you're not in Jesus Christ, there is still a wall between you and God. Even this table that the ecclesia will share this morning is guarded for a reason. For your protection. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians, taking these elements in an unworthy manner could lead to sickness and even death. Because God is still holy. But there's good news for you this morning. God's justice in this moment Demands that you not come near, but His mercy and His love extend to you forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Every time His word is preached, every time Jesus is proclaimed in your hearing, the free offer of the good news of Jesus Christ is put before you, that you would come near. It's God's desire that you come near. And so this morning, I say to you, come to Jesus Christ and live. Serve the living God and enjoy Him. There is a separation, but God has made a way in Christ for you to come near. But if you're here this morning and you're in a believer you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you still hear these words from God, do not come near. Listen to me. That is not the voice of God. It could be the voice of your enemy, the devil. It could be the inner voice of your residual shame. It is not the voice of God. This is the voice of God to you, believer. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Matthew 11.28. John 6:37 All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 14:23 If anyone loves me that is Jesus he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. John 14:13 my favorite words possibly in all of scripture let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you, I go prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come down to you and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Those are the words of God for you, believers. In Jesus Christ, you've been called out, but it's better than that. You've not only been called out, you've been welcomed in. There is no do not come near in the deliverance that Jesus brings. There's a familiar sermon illustration that's been floating around pulpits as long as I can remember. You probably know it. It's a... It's the one about a judge who delivers a guilty verdict to a defendant, and the sentence of the crime is hefty. And everyone's surprised the judge takes off his robe and he walks down to the court clerk and he pays the fine and he turns to the defendant and says, Your debt is paid, you may go. Something always bothered me about that illustration. I think it's true as far as it goes. It does illustrate that God is not only just, but the justifier. In a forensic sense, the illustration gets the basic job done. It never made me love God more. It seemed to me as some separated transaction. It made me feel like I owed God some gratitude. It never made me love Him. Maybe it should have. But Then a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I heard a pastor put words to what I'd been feeling. In essence, he said this, the gospel is better than that. The flaw in this illustration, if there is one, is this phrase, your debt is paid, you may go. Moses, Moses, do not come near. Friends in Jesus Christ, your judge and redeemer looks at you and says, Your debt is paid. You may come near. Isn't that what you want? Not to go away back into the wilderness, but to be in his very presence. My Father and I will come, make our home with you. That where I am, you may be also. The ecclesia have not been called out to a clean slate to start over again. The ecclesia have been called out to worship and commune with God Himself. So next Sunday morning around 9.37 a.m., I want you to do three things. I want you to spend a moment, and I mean just a moment, remembering who you were. Then I want you to think about that continual strain of praise that began in New Zealand 16 hours before And I want you to come into this room and take your place among the called out ones. And as we begin to sing our song of ascent, I want you to come forward and imagine that temple veil tearing from top to bottom. And join your voice with the rest of the ecclesia around the world and in this room. Your debt is paid. Your chains are gone. You may come near. And it will delight God as much as it delights you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this day is amazing things are happening on heaven and on the earth. The praise of God in Jesus Christ is going up across this globe hour by hour, time zone after time zone, praise for the saving work and the love of the person of Jesus Christ for His people goes up to you and we know from your word it is a delightful sound. It is a pleasing aroma to you because you love Jesus and came for and rescued Your people that we could draw near. Lord, if there is anyone this morning who is in Jesus Christ who thinks You are saying to them, do not come near, heal them by Your Holy Spirit of the power of Your Word, that they would know You have come to make Your home with them. That in Jesus Christ, they are welcome and cherished and loved. We pray in His name. Amen.